Hi, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Toy Heart, a podcast about bluegrass. This is the last episode of season two here from Nashville is my conversation with Allison Krauss. I remember, you know, the first time I looked out in the audience and saw people singing words to our songs that only we had recorded. That was just a really crazy moment. Just never thought it would end up being there. Never thought we'd hear back from Rounder. Yeah. Never thought we would hear from Rounder in the first place. If this is your first time listening, you can hear full interviews with Jerry Douglas, Allison Brown, Bela Fleck, Larry Sparks, Jody Stecker, and so many more wherever you get your podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Later on. Okay, it's basic folk. We have honest conversations with folk musicians on the American Songwriter Podcast Network. Hello, I'm Cindy House. If you've never listened to this podcast before, thank you so much and welcome. And if you have, you're great too. Uh, excited about Rey Zaragoza, or if you want to say it in the Spanish way, Rey Zaragoza. Ray has strong spiritual leader vibes, and I literally believe everything that she says. Originally raised in New York City, she and her two siblings and parents, five people, somehow all live together in a studio apartment. New York has been a strong influence on her identity and her work ethic. She's a person who's always moving and moving fast. Ray's mom is an immigrant from Japan, and her dad is of Mexican and Native American heritage, which also very much impacts her life in music. Her songs walk the line of activism and poetry, and she manages to make a great pop song with an important message. No matter if she's writing an anthem for protesters at Standing Rock or an old-fashioned love song, centered in her message is fearlessness, bravery, and vulnerability. Her latest album, Woman in Color, was inspired by the current crusade to bring justice and equality to all those who've been marginalized, maligned, and generally shunned at so many different levels. Saragossa has grown more confident and changed her perspective about adding her voice to that narrative. She writes songs about loving yourself no matter what you look like that reaches out to anyone that feels different. Even a song like The It Girl resonates with people who do not identify as female. All this to say, Ray is also a great hang. Oh man, she is fun, quick-witted, and like all cool people, she has her own podcast, Create Well, with her co-host Erica Elan. Enjoy Ray, she is the real deal. We're going to take a listen to a song from her latest album, Woman in Color, and I did mention the It Girl, but I wanted to play this really beautiful song called Red and that we do talk about later in the interview. It's a song that talks about the missing and murdered indigenous women and girls across North America, and it just is a stunning, uh, stunning song. Okay, here is Red from Ray Saragossa, and then we'll get to our conversation conversation on Basic Folk. Don't go out into the rain Don't go out into the night It happens every day They just vanish from sight don't go walking alone Speak to who you don't know They've 
even finding your sisters in the Red River, in the Red River. learning Spanish so <laughs> I feel like a little shy about my pronunciation <laughs> it's so. fine it's Saragossa Saragossa yeah okay. perfect I read your interview with Lizzie No mm-hmm. in the talk oh, house yeah. and it was so great yeah yeah oh my gosh we got into it <laughs> yeah it was awesome yeah I don't have Thank any you. questions about that particularly but if mm-hmm. anybody's listening to this and um hasn't read that definitely look for that um, cool. So out. let's get into it. Awesome. You grew up in New York um, and have you lived there until you were 14, mm-hmm. moved to L.A. And then it's kind of like we went back and forth between New York and L.A. for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, but how do you see being raised in New York City, particularly like during those formative years, impacting mm-hmm. your personality? Oh, yeah. I think that growing up in New York is exactly why I am the way I am um for better or for worse um in New York like city kids we grow up really quickly you know we are on our own at a very young age I was like taking the subways by myself at the age of like 10 like 10 11 and um you kind of like figure out who you are very young and I've always been kind of like a go-getter like entrepreneur um like to have control over my life and like super like hyperactive in that way. And I think that a lot of that stems from growing up in a big city where like the world is at your fingertips. And so you can just go get it. And I remember like once I was like eight years old and I really wanted this boom box like purse (laughs) and I saved up my money from like lunch money my mom gave me. And then I just like walked out the door and went and bought the purse. So like I felt like I was like an adult, like I could just, have agency and figure out what I wanted to do, what I wanted to attain, do it. And I didn't really have to tell anyone about it. I just could do it at like the age of eight. And so I think that that really taught me this like control of like, I can manifest whatever I want out of my creative career, out of my music or out of whatever. Um, But it also, I think that when I hear about people's childhoods of like running around in a backyard and like having animals and experiencing nature and, all of these things like that are so innocent and beautiful. Like I didn't have any of that. <laughs> and right. I think I'm discovering a lot of it as an adult. And oh. so um, I think growing up fast is like both like a really amazing thing and also like kind of a, a not a great thing. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Sounds like um, like hitting it big before you're like ready to, you know, before you've actually like grown up. Yeah. And I grew up with a lot of child actors. You know, I was an actor when I was a kid, um, Mm. but I grew up with a lot of like a lot of my friends when I was going to the professional performing arts school from the age of 11 to 13 in middle school. um, Most of my friends were working actors at the age of 11. Um, They were on Broadway or they were doing this or whatever. And I worked from time to time, too. And so it was just this real mentality that like at the age of 13, like if you're not like making a name for yourself at that age, then you're like Mm. behind. And that's a really kind of, I look at 13 year olds and I'm like, oh my gosh, just enjoy your childhood. Don't worry about like 
<laughs> making it big. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. Oh my. Um, okay, so you also lived in a studio apartment. Is that mm-hmm. correct? Like as a family of five? Yeah, yeah. Fam- family of five. And I live in a studio now and I look around and I'm like, oh, this place is so small, but it's actually the same size of the like studio I grew up in. Wow. And yeah, I was like brother, sister, mom, dad, um, 400 square feet. Um, yeah, until I was 10. We did that wow. until I was 10. And yeah. How did you um, find privacy or find alone time as a kid? And how do you relate to that now? Ooh, that's a really great question. Um, I honestly, part of me thinks I'm like supposed to be an introvert. Like I was like born to be an introvert, (laughs) but uh, I never really became an introvert because there was nowhere to introvert (laughs) in my my family's home. Um, I didn't really have anywhere to go to be alone ever. I'm trying to think of a time when I felt, you know, if, if I was alone, it was when I was walking and I was walking to school um, and I had music in my ears. So like alone to me was like music, like a music was my escape, um, from constantly, you know, having people, you know, and I grew up in an environment that wasn't incredibly like it was, there was, you know, that studio apartment was not like the most incredible place for a lot of my childhood. You know, my parents, when you have like two parents that like live in the same room as you who argue all the time, like there's no, there's nowhere to go, you know? Mm. And so um, the dynamic of that apartment and that my childhood at oftentimes was not great. And so I think that, and oftentimes it was amazing and I love my parents and they did an amazing job raising us. But, you know, I think that when you're like so young and you're in those formative years and you don't have a place to go, you don't have a place to escape. For me, that always was, always was music and walking. Yeah, talking about music being an escape and first listening to music as a young person, being introduced to um, different types of music, like folk music, Mm -hmm. um, the mariachi music um, that your dad would play for you, classic rock. Um, You would find these through, you know, family, friends, crushes, making you mixtapes. Yeah. Um, can you talk about those first connections to music and what it felt like to discover new music and develop your own taste? Yeah, yeah. You know, music was like everything to me when I was a kid. Um, between, you know, my dad was a mariachi. and my, Oh, he played. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My dad uh, played in a mariachi band. He plays trumpet. And I've always, like, you know, coming from a Mexican heritage on my dad's side, my dad's Mexican and also Native American. And music is such a part of Mexican heritage and Native Native American culture. Um, but the mariachi music was a huge part of my life. Um, I loved it so much. My, my abuelita was always playing it. Uh, she was always playing Selena, and I loved Selena. Um, I didn't understand the Spanish songs, but I still loved it. Um, and I just loved the feeling of like mariachi music and how it like surrounded you. Like there were so many people and it was like this communal thing. Um, and then, you know, for me when I was younger, I loved Jewel and Avril Lavigne and like girl power rock. And then, you know, in middle school, I got into um, the Queen and Led Zeppelin and the Beatles. And yeah, I don't know. It's just like music has always been like like a god to me you know music has Mm. always been like the ultimate for me it has been my escape it has been my enjoyment it has been um 
yeah, it's just been, it's been everything. And so I think every single piece of that shaped my music. And also I grew up doing musical theater in New York. And I know that musical theater super like shaped my storytelling um, in folk music. In talking about um, being a child actor, doing musical theater in New York, um, it was very competitive. Um, yeah. You say that you were raised to be competitive and hearing you talk about New York um, it just seems like it was ingrained in you early on. Um, how do you relate to being competitive as an adult? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, I actually talked about that a little bit on my podcast as well. And com- competition is so interesting because I definitely have always seen myself as a competitive individual. I grew up doing competitive gymnastics where they teach you so young to be competitive. Um, and then with acting I couldn't even continue acting because the competition of it to me was so stressful it was so like debilitatingly stressful Mm. because you're put up against other people many of which you know you care about and only one person gets the gig that terrifies me Um, it sounds so stressful as somebody who like cares about other people (laughs) yeah I just like it just was so hard for me um I feel like with music when I found music to me, there is no competition in music um, from my perspective, you know, because you, instead of with acting, I felt like I was auditioning for a part and then one person got the role. But with music, you are creating your own role and you are creating your own space, you know. And I think I've been in like two situations in music. Um, like one time I, I was a finalist for the, the No Depression like songwriting award at Freshgrass mm-hmm. Festival. And we all had to perform and then, you know, someone won. And I was like, oh, my gosh, this is so crazy. This feels like an acting situation where Mm -hmm. it's a competition. But even then, like, we all loved each other so much and we didn't care who won. And um, so for with music, for me, I'm always in constant competition with myself and always trying to one up myself (laughs) at all times. But I never like really rarely feel in competition with other artists at all. because I really feel like we're all creating our own roles and then we get to like create our own space for that role. Mm. Um, But yeah, I'm definitely a naturally competitive person. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You also experienced jealousy as a child actor and you also talked about this on your podcast, Mm. Create Well. Yeah. Um, jealousy as a compass, which I thought was like so interesting. And you said you're comparing your insides to someone's outsides. Mm. So now when you realize that you're jealous of someone, and this is something I've been thinking about a lot. So I was like, definitely want to talk about this. Yeah. Um, when you realize that you're jealous of somebody, you actually like lean into that feeling and try to figure out why and figure out like something about yourself, yeah. like learn something about yourself. What has that journey with jealousy been like? And like, what does that leaning in feel like for you? That's a great question. And also, I'm so happy that you've listened to my podcast and, <laughs> and read so many things about me. That's like so cool. Um, but yeah, like jealousy is this compass, is this um, this thing that Erica and I really thought about. And I really do believe when you're jealous of someone, it should be kind of like this exciting thing because you're like, oh, like, what do they have that I want? And how can Mm -hmm. I incorporate that into my own life? And I think I mentioned this on the podcast or in another situation, I can't remember when, but 
I was starting to feel really deep jealousy towards people in relationships. And I had never felt that before in a long time because I was so focused on my career and I was like, I will focus on my career. Like, I don't want any relationship. I got out of a really long, serious relationship like three years ago. I don't want any part of that. And then the past year, I started getting jealous of people in relationships. And I was like, what's going on with me? What's going on with me? I'm like, like, oh gosh, like jealousy is a compass. Like maybe there's like a part of me that like wants that in my life. And Mm. maybe I should unpack that and see why and start like coming to terms with that in my own heart. And then once I do it, the jealousy just turns into like this excitement for like what's to come. Mm. And so, you know, that was happening in the past year and also it's like I think as a musician sometimes I'll get jealous of um of people who are doing things that are like sometimes I'll still get jealous of people who are acting because it was a part of my past and mm. I'm I do kind of miss it in a way and I spent so much time getting away from it and so I'm like huh like how can I incorporate that in my life even just like in a little bit um in a little like tangible way but I know that the leaning into it can oftentimes be really painful um, because you have to like come to this humbleness of being like, oh, like this is, um," because I think a lot of times we fight jealousy with like, we want to just fight it with ego, you know, and be like, this is why I'm better than that person. This is why I deserve what they have. This is why this, 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 of like trying to be in competition with that person when really we should just be like taking a step back and looking at them and saying like, what can I learn from you? And that's why I always, you know, on the podcast I mentioned, I always suggest to people that if you're like debilitatingly jealous of someone, which I have felt where you literally become like obsessed, like you just think about it all the time and you're like, you can't function um, or be in a room with that person because you're just so jealous of them. Just like stare fear in the eye, go up to them or message them and be like, Hey, I really admire what you're doing and I would love to like get a coffee or jump on a zoom or talk on the phone because I'd love to learn from you. Mm. And oftentimes like those messages won't be like responded to, but like sometimes they will be, but even just the act of doing that is so healing. (laughs) I want to like, um, follow you around. Uh, so if you're going to start a cult or anything, like (laughs) I will join. Yes. Oh my gosh, that's the best thing I've ever heard. (laughs) (laughs) Part of your story growing up is that you felt in order to be beautiful, Mm -hmm. you had to be white. And Mm -hmm. there's some really like heartbreaking stories of you um, uh, trying to make your skin lighter and Mm -hmm. getting embarrassed when you'd get really tan and you wanted to be a pretty white girl more than anything. Yeah. So now as an adult, you have been writing songs and telling stories that kind of like dispute your old feelings. Yeah. Could you talk about that process? What was that process like for you in discovering mm-hmm. your self-worth? Yeah, it's it's in real time. It's I'm still I'm still like deep in that um recovery process. Um I grew up in even in New York City, which is an incredibly diverse city. I grew up in predominantly white communities. Um and I watched a lot of television and movies and Disney Channel and whatever growing up. And I just like wanted so bad to be like the girl who gets the guy or like the pretty one who like everyone, you know, 
admires or like the leading girl on the TV show or the this or that, you know, especially growing up as an actor. And um, I remember as a kid, as a child actor, they always said to us, well, you're a minority. You're always going to be the best friend. Like that was said over and over and over. You will get cast as the best friend. You're not going to be the lead. You're going to be the best friend. You're going to be the sidekick. And how does that mess with you as a kid being told Mm -hmm. that you will always be the sidekick? And that's why in the It Girl, my song, I say like, do you ever feel like everywhere you go, um, you're just an act in the sideshow, just a friend, a second thought, you know? Mm -hmm. And that's how it felt. And that was constantly being ingrained in my head as a child, especially as a child actor going out for roles, never being auditioning for a lead role, always auditioning for a sidekick or a best friend. And I um, I always thought that um, if I just was white, all of my problems would go away and people would think I was pretty and that um, I'd be accepted and that maybe the boys in the class would like me and, and whatever. And no matter how delusional that was, um, it felt very real. And I know that there's so much truth to it and that it is a ongoing um, societal issue um, mm. that I, I hope is getting better slowly as we have more representation in media and more representation in the entertainment industry. And we have these conversations like we're having right now. And um, so that shift for me is ongoing, like I said. Um, mm. I even know like in my first relationship, I had this debilitating fear that my boyfriend at the time who was who happened to be white, but he was going to leave me for a white girl because I will never be as good as a white girl. That was what Mm. my head said to me. And I'm so sad that that's how I felt, but it was how I felt. And I I know that I'm not alone in feeling that way because like we're told over and over, you will always be the best friend. You will always be the sidekick. Mm. And um I was uh, talking to a group of students uh, at a college a couple weeks ago, and she said that she feels the same way. And like, what does she do about it? And I told her, instead of trying to tell yourself that you are the leading role or you are this thing that we've always wanted to be, I have embraced this sense of like rebelliousness and how like whoever chooses to love me or, you know, embracing who I am fully is like a form of activism. It is a form of like radical reclamation. It's a form of rebelliousness because Mm -hmm. society for my life has told me not to feel that way. So how fun is that (laughs) to like love yourself in a way that is rebellious, that is radical, that is a form of activism, that is a form of reclamation. Um, And she liked that too. I just feel like loving myself is, um, is a was a way as a small way of changing the world because hopefully young girls that look like me will not feel that way in the next generation. So like in our cult are we going to wear those <laughs> uh, silk scarves or like robes or yes. something? <laughs> we are going to wear like I don't even know. It's going to be great. We're going to wear hats and holiday sweaters. <laughs> the wide-brimmed hats. Yes, the wide-brimmed hats. I was making like notes about this interview and had like yeah. pages and pages and pages of notes. And the last oh word I wrote was hats. I didn't actually like <laughs> end up writing a question, but 
Oh my gosh, I love, like, I don't think anyone has ever prepared to like speak to me as much as you have. <laughs> this is so wonderful. <laughs> oh, well, I'm glad you're enjoying it. I want to talk about your feelings about um, performing. Um, you wanted to be a performer since you were really young um, and then realized what uh, music was what you wanted to perform when you were mm -hmm. like a teenager. Yeah. Can you talk about what it feels like when you perform? Oh, I'm going to cry. <laughs> <laughs> I miss it so much. I miss performing so much. Um, performing will always be like my first, my first love. Um, I've been performing on stage since I was five years old possibly maybe I think my first school play was when I was eight but um I was doing all kinds of stuff on stage before that um for me I always say this and it sounds crazy but I feel more myself on stage than I do not on stage I hmm. feel like I am more comfortable on stage than I do in an interview or I do like in real life sometimes I feel like I'm always in my head a lot or I get kind of anxious or I can have social anxiety or, or whatever I'm always second guessing myself but when I'm on stage like everything clicks and I'm fine and I just feel very poised and graceful and hmm. myself and um I love the stage so much and um I miss it very dearly. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, I bet. How do you think your zeal for performing and all your experiences performing as a young person have shaped your writing and your music? Yeah, you know, even when I write songs, I write I, a lot of times when I write songs, I think about the performance aspect of the song. And I will write songs that I want to perform live, you know, and I think about like the live performance aspect when I'm um, when I'm writing. And I think that growing up in musical theater really shaped my songwriting because musical theater is so much about storytelling. And I feel like for me, folk songwriting is my way of storytelling. And I take a lot of inspiration from um, kind of like the structure of writing a musical theater song uh, for writing my songs as well. Um, there's always like a beginning, middle and an end and like a thesis statement of the song. And it's, it's really, uh, I'd like to think that my record is in mm. like, it's got like a little bit of like a touch of like theatrical ness yeah. to it. Um, and uh, yeah, one day I'll write my musical. <laughs> <laughs> that would be great. You'd write a great musical. Oh, I can't wait. <laughs> I read about the first time you bombed on stage when you were in the third grade. Yes. Um, hilarious. Uh, <gasps> it was during a chorus line and you were sick and you could like barely get through the song. And then yeah. afterwards... What did you walk up to your friend and you're like, how was it? And she was like, it was pretty bad. Yeah. Um, <laughs> how do you think that experience helped you overcome embarrassment? Mm -hmm. um, and then how do you think that outlook kind of translates for you beyond music? Oof, yeah, um, that experience shaped me in so many ways and I'm very grateful for it the worst happened very early I mean I'm not gonna say the worst like oh my gosh there's tons of things <laughs> that can happen but um yeah I was in a my one of my first talent shows at school and the whole school was there and all my parents my parents were there and all their friends and it was 
huge and I was tap dancing and singing and I had like bronchitis or something as like as an eight-year-old I could not talk I was like just completely my voice was gone and I was gargling salt water backstage and and my parents you know they're like their own version of like stage parents and they're like you're fine get on stage just go you're good (laughs) and I was like oh my gosh and I just couldn't get any of the song out and so it was just like muffled sounds and then tap dancing and then like muffled sounds and then tap dancing and yeah I went off stage and I went up to my friend and I was like how'd it go and she was like not good and then I asked my mom I was like how'd it go and she was like it went the way it went (laughs) (laughs) and I like wasn't even upset I was just like huh like great you know like I survived and I think a lot of times with stage fright we get so afraid of what could happen but Mm. I've performed so ill you know I performed I performed at the troubadour with like vertigo and they had to leave a garbage off stage for me to puke like I've performed like at where else I performed in DC with bronchitis and I had to transpose all of my songs down two keys so I could actually just get them out which is crazy because anytime anyone like like messages me like I found your music at that show at like in the at the DC show I'm like oh my gosh like it's I'm like and I, I actually made like a lot of new fans at that show I don't know why maybe they thought it was endearing how I was like hey everyone I'm like really sick right now but um it was great and I would never had any I never have any doubt in myself that I can make it through and I think it started with that that eight-year-old just making it happen and like "Eh, what's the worst that can happen you know you walk off stage it's done so um yeah (laughs) and then does that translate into um your non-music life oh yeah I forgot about that part um (laughs) let's see let me think let me think um I think so I think I think I feel like a little bit more shameless on stage than I do in real life um I think I'm a, a lot more afraid of making a mistake in real life than I am making a mistake on stage. Like I could stop a song and forget all of my lyrics and be like, oh, I'm sorry, you guys, let me start that over and walk off stage and ha- have no anxiety about it. <laughs> but if I make a mistake in real life, um, like I forget to, I don't know, to do anything or I don't know, forget someone's birthday or forget um to bring something to my mom that she's waiting for me to do or, or forget anything like that. I feel so awful and I have so much shame around it. Hmm. Um, and I guess maybe it's because real life to me feels like more serious than like a stage performance. I'm like, well, like what's going to happen? Who's like, you know, what's on the line. And so I think that maybe, maybe it doesn't translate to my actual life and I should maybe yeah. work on that. <laughs> kind of sounds like your on stage self is like your alter ego. That can yes. just like do whatever. You yeah. should give her a name. <laughs> I know, I know. I do feel that way. I um it's kind of like, you know, Hannah Montana. She has like her two versions of herself. I feel like all artists must feel a certain level of that. And mm. I get to funnel a lot of um the parts of myself that I want to amplify and that feel like my most empowered and my most confident and my most creative and my most brave. I get to channel that all into my music and all onto the stage which is all a part of me but it's all like amplified when I'm on stage Mm -hmm. and then Mm -hmm. when I'm off stage um 
sometimes those things are, are like, are not as in focus as, as I would like hmm. them to be. Uh, this kind of relates. Um, on uh, your podcast, you were talking about how you feel like a vehicle for your songs and that your ancestors are speaking through you with, with the writing and yeah. that it's humbling to think of like the generations that worked hard for you to be there, be here. Could yeah. you talk about how um, you like first felt that connection with your ancestors through writing and then how do you yeah. work to keep that connection? Absolutely. I love this question. I think that the first time I really felt it was when I wrote In the River, uh, the song about um, Standing Rock that kind of launched my career into what it is now of writing songs of a social justice nature. That was kind of the first one I wrote that got a lot of attention and I felt um, had some impact. And when I wrote that song and people came up to me afterwards saying like, that's so amazing. Like you wrote this song, like how did you do it? I would blank every time. And a part of me really, really believed I didn't write the song. Um, and I kept having to tell myself, I was like, no, like I was sitting on my bed by myself. No one else was there. I wrote that song, but sometimes I look at the lyrics and I'm just like, Oh my gosh. Like this feels like it was written by, um, my grandma Via. It was written by my aunt Jo. It was written by my abuelita. It was written by my obachan. It was written by all of these people who came before me that were speaking through me. And I really feel that about that song. I feel that I am not responsible for the impact that it's had. I feel that it is like because of like a huge team of energy mm. and people. Um, and spirit and spirits and so um that's how i feel I, that's how it felt with that song and now whenever i i write i always like do a little prayer to my ancestors like allow them to come in and let them know that if they have anything to say that i'm here to say it for them and i think that that is the way i want to always lead my career because as a singer songwriter or performer, it's so easy for us to get wrapped up in like, this is like so in my control and these songs are like come from me and I'm like a finite being of like stories. And it's like, no, it's like, I'm here to share the stories of like what's like present, past and future. And I just want to be like a humble, like, like servant of those stories. And, um, I remember hearing a songwriter speak at the ASCAP expo, about how she feels that she's a television set and that she gets her songs like from her through the antennas. And like, if you wouldn't go up to a television set and say, Oh, like that episode of friends was great. Congratulations. You know, like that comes <laughs> from like something far beyond. And so yeah. I loved that. I'm like, Oh yeah. Like I feel that, um, music for me is a spiritual experience and I just want to channel um, all of it through me, but I don't, I'd never feel responsible, solely responsible for my creations. I feel like all the women who like, and men and everyone who created me, whether it's my mom, my dad, my ancestors, whatnot, like they're a part of that too. Okay, so let's talk about, you were 22 years old when you wrote In the River, mm -hmm. and then your debut album, Fight for You, mm -hmm. In the River is also on that album. Mm -hmm. 
let's just say it's multifaceted. There are protest songs. There are songs about finding your voice as a woman of color. And there are good old-fashioned love songs. Let's just put that out there. (laughs) So something I read about this record is that you had been smothering your natural identity to please homogenous pop pop culture. Mm -hmm. Boo. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Don't like it. But after Fight For You, you discovered the beauty, significance, and necessity of your identity for Mm -hmm. the broader conversation. So can you talk about how life felt before writing that record versus after? Absolutely. I think that before writing that record, I thought about what does the world want to hear from me as a woman in music and how am I going to make it as a 21 year old writing songs? And I was like, um, okay, I'll write love songs. I'll write things that are nice and pretty and people will enjoy them and it won't make any noise, won't upset anyone, you know? And, um, that's what I did for like the first five years of trying to pursue a music career from like the age of like, maybe not five years, like three years, like from the age of like 19 to 22, Um, and I just tried so hard to like give the people what I thought they wanted. Um, and it was so not fulfilling for me and I I wanted to stop writing songs Mm. (laughs) because I just felt like I had nothing interesting to say and my boy problems were not interesting to me at all. And, um, then I wrote in the river and everything changed and I realized, oh, all of the dark feelings I have, all of the things that I never want to share because I think people are going to um, think that I'm being too political or that I'm, I need to like, you know, behave and be societal, like Lee, you know, just be nice and quiet like a woman should be or whatever. Um, That's like, that person is not going to create the art that, is going to keep me dedicated to my music and it's going to keep me inspired. So um, that's when it all changed. Hmm. The new album, Woman in Color, was inspired by the current crusade to bring justice and equality to all those who have been marginalized, maligned, and generally shunned at so many different levels. So can you talk about like how between your debut album and this record, how you grew more confident or changed your perspective about adding your voice to this narrative? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think that this has been like a really crucial change for me between Fight For You and Woman in Color because I was suffering from some like really crazy imposter syndrome for a lot of that time. And imposter syndrome, for anyone listening who doesn't know, it's like this feeling like um, you're an imposter (laughs) or like (laughs) your voice. Like um, you don't belong. Like you don't belong. And um, I've always been really navigating my identity through my music career um a lot of you know i'm indigenous on my father's side i'm also mexican which is redundant like that's all like indigenous (laughs) um and on my mom's side i'm an immigrant my mom's an immigrant from japan um and she's also taiwanese and so i've always broadcast myself as asian american as native american as uh latinx and um you know, people look at me and they're like, you're not Asian. And I'm like, yes, I am. And then, you know, a lot of times I've been labeled as an indigenous artist 
in a lot of situations because people read my bio and they like they like pull that part out of it and have labeled me I've been called Native Americana or I've been called these things and I'm a multiracial girl from New York City and being labeled as a Latinx artist or an indigenous artist or an Asian American artist to me made me feel really like it was an identity crisis because I felt like I wasn't enough of any of these things to claim them. And being labeled by my race in my music was so uncomfortable because I create folk music that historically has never included a lot of these races. And so I just mm-hmm. felt this like, like, what does this all mean? And how do I make sense of this? And how do I talk about it? And I'm a part of a genre that I'm very much a minority in. And I'm a part of different cultural communities that I embrace so much and I love so much, but yet I also feel like I grew up very much disenfranchised from. And as an adult, I've had to work my way back of educating myself on what it truly means to be an indigenous woman, what it truly means to be the daughter of an immigrant. And um, I suffered from a lot of imposter syndrome of like, how do wait? how do I present myself? Who am I as an artist when I can't really fit how I feel? I want to present myself in a headline, you know, and every headline that has ever been written about me, um, labeling me by my race, um, has always felt like this punch in the gut. Like, Oh my gosh, like, is that even me? You know? Mm. And so I think the, the years between fight for you and woman in color was a lot of this this grappling. This is crazy that you are like, I don't belong. Like it's one of those things you're like, I don't belong Mm. anywhere. Yeah. Like I don't belong in the homogenous white world and I don't belong in this other world that I clearly am part of. Yes. It's exactly how it feels. (laughs) And that's like this narrative that I'm really trying to talk about when it comes to mixed race individuals in America, because we're not white enough to be, one of the white kids obviously and we've always felt like we're not white enough to be american but we're not like you know like i'm not mexican enough i don't speak spanish enough to really be to claim mexican and i'm not native enough to be native and i'm not asian enough to be asian and it's this feeling of like who am i like Mm. i literally feel like i belong nowhere and that has been the most isolating alienating feeling of my life and um So I think that that whole, that monologue I gave right there is what I've been grappling with in between these two records and um, what I've been trying to come to terms with, with this new record and what I I feel like such a sense of catharsis having released this album because so much of it is about that identity crisis. And Mm. now that I'm like talking about it, it feels like it's healing. (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh man. Yeah, because it's, well, it's like you're telling me and my reaction is like, that's insane. Yeah. Like, what, mm-hmm. that sounds really hard and insane. Yeah. Another thing you were talking about um, on your podcast is how you were being interviewed by a white guy. Um, and he said the It Girl really mm-hmm. resonated with him, which you saw as like a song for brown girls. Mm-hmm. And you also said your brother really loves the song. And I just want to know a little bit more about how you feel about a song like that impacting people beyond maybe who you expected. Yeah, I love it. Like I said on the (laughs) podcast, like the fact that a white guy was like, I identify with that song to me was like so cool because it shows we've been told for generations, hundreds of years that telling brown stories or telling black stories or telling the stories of marginalized racial groups can only be done 
in certain times because it's just not relatable to the mm. to the like broad America, you know, and like, oh, we can't have black leading ladies or brown leading ladies because then like the majority of America won't feel a scene through it, you know, mm. and um, that comment he said like proves all of that wrong. It really shows that we can tell stories from like the brown girl perspective and it can relate to anyone and that we are more alike than we think and that we don't have to hear the same story over and over again for it to relate to each other. Like we can tell diverse stories and find the bridges. And that is what's going to actually make us realize that we all, we all like every single person, like Brown, black, white, Asian, like we all come from very common truths. And there is something that is in all of our hearts that like is that can connect. And that can like, even when we talk about issues that don't specifically relate to us, it can, really change our lives and it can really make us feel seen and Mm. so that's like my greatest um you know it's one of my like favorite things to happen is when Mm. people of different walks of life can say that they relate to what i'm saying because it just just goes to show how universal and relatable these themes are I've thought a lot about this question, but um, the way that I wrote it is like very simple and I don't know if it makes sense. Like I like the way that you balance the activism Mm -hmm. in your music with kind of like the the whimsical, listenable, (laughs) like swayable nature. Yeah. You know, um, in, in the music, can you... Can you talk about that that balance, yes. like where that might come from? Sure, sure. I um, I'm a, a big fan of like juxtaposition, and I've always kind of joked that I'm like trying to hypnotize people into making change or taking action or being <laughs> activists. You know, cult it's leader. Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh, yes. So <laughs> you know, it's kind of like listen to this pretty song, with this <laughs> pretty voice, and like. I'll put a pretty dress on, but I'm going to tell you that we need to change the world. (laughs) (laughs) And it's kind of just like, I, you know, I'm like a compulsively positive person. I am like super cheesy and super smiley. And like, that's who, who I'll always be. But I'm also incredibly outspoken and I will never shy away from, you know, speaking up for what's right. And so, you know, I used to play at rallies all the time. And there would be multiple speakers like dropping these incredibly empowering truth bombs of speeches that were like amazing. Everyone's like, yeah, 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 yeah. And then I would get on stage and just like give a bit of an exhale for the whole audience because I just Mm. want to play like a pretty song with the same intentions of all of the speeches that moved everyone incredibly. But just it's a song and it's like this exhale. And so I've always thought about how with my music I want to be this like exhale at a rally I want to be Mm. the peace within the movement you know and I never write anything about like I don't like peace and love is great but also like I like action I like moving Mm. forward I like speaking up um and I've always felt like yeah I want to have my songs be that exhale at a rally so it's about the action, but it's also um, a bit of an exhale. And I remember one time a friend of mine, it was so crazy. I was performing at this event 
in Albuquerque and I forgot my wallet at like a Starbucks or something. And this um, one of the girls who was working at the event, she drove me and she was like in the car. She's like, oh, I like she's like, I didn't want to tell you, like, like, but I wanted to share something about how what your song did for me. And she spent a lot of time at Standing Rock, um, like far, 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 far longer than I did um, working at the medical tent. And she told me that before they went to the front lines, they would listen to my song in their teepee to remind themselves to keep peaceful and to keep mm. level-headed when they were Whoa. at the front line. And that changed everything for me. I was like, oh my gosh, like there is a place for ballads in the movement. Wow. That's amazing. <laughs> On the new record, you work with producer Tucker Martin, who... Um, has worked with people like Laura Veers, Decemberist, My Morning Jacket. And you mentioned um, his work with Blind Pilot as a reason to work with him, who like, um, Blind Pilot, when I was going through a really, really dark time, like their music is just so emotionally resonant. And I find um, Tucker's work to be very emotional and your music is very emotional. So how did Tucker's understanding of emotional music add to this record? Oh, oh my gosh. It, it made the record. I mean, Tucker is this like sonic wizard and he feels emotion in every single like intricate piece of an, of a song. And, uh, he took my like emotional sketches of these stories and was able to fill them in and bring them to life in a way that I could have only dream dreamt of. And um, yeah, I mean, I'm just such a, I was such a big fan of Tucker's. I shared this story about how I was driving down Venice Boulevard and don't doubt by blind pilot came on and I had to park my car and cry. And I said to myself like out loud that day, I was like, whoever produced this song is going to produce my music one day. (laughs) And I didn't even seek him out in that moment. It was like years later when my, manager asked me like who do you want to produce the record and I was like that guy obviously and (laughs) um it's just this emotional quality that jumps out of the song um even on the radio or on a vinyl or a cd or anything it just jumps out and it's just like this tucker stamp Mm. um and it's breathtaking I'm just like I count my lucky stars that he agreed to do my record (laughs) (laughs) I really, um, it's hard to pick a favorite on the record, um, but I think mine is the song Red. Um, and you wrote mm-hmm. it about the missing and murdered indigenous women and girls mm-hmm. um, across North America and uh, wanting to start these conversations in America about the movement for protection for these women and, and girls and um, female identifying people. Um, when you encounter an opportunity to talk about this epidemic because again like red is such a beautiful Mm. song and i'm like oh in the you know swaying to Mm. it and then i hear the lyrics and i'm like oh shit this is about murdered indigenous women um you know when you encounter the opportunity to talk about it what does the responsibility feel like and like where is the balance for you in terms of education versus like frustration for the lack of knowledge absolutely um i think that finding that that place is can be difficult and I think Lizzie and I have talked about that a little bit in terms of like 
as artists, it's our job to start conversations always. It's our job to start conversations and writing a song about something is a way of starting a conversation just as we are now. Like the fact that you asked about the song is an amazing opportunity for me to talk about the issue. And, um, I think that is a huge reason why I wrote the song is because I wanted to have the conversations, uh, following the record. And, um, I am also still learning about, uh, missing and murdered indigenous women and the legislation that is in, that is in the works and has failed, um, indigenous women historically and how there's so much more, uh, to learn and to do and how there's no real databases for who's missing and how there's just, um, it's even kind of hard to find information about it. It's even hard to find information about. And so, um, one resource I will, I will share is, um, sovereignbodies.org. Um, they are starting their own database and they have some resources there. Um, and if you research MMIW, um, I know rising hearts is doing work with MMIW. Um, and, uh, you know, that's a good place to start. But basically, you know, it's something that no one has talked about because, you know, indigenous women, native women are, have a higher rate of murder and violence uh, than any other like race of women in the country. But because of like the ways that these women have gone missing, like off of reservations and whatnot, a lot of it is not tracked and it's just completely devastating. And I very much urge everyone to continue to educate yourself on the matter. And if it's new to you, to start educating yourself on it, because it's something that has been going on for ever and mm. um, very much not talked about. Have you heard of the artist Beatrice Deer? Uh, yes, I believe so. Yeah. She's an Inuit artist uh, who lives in Montreal. And I oh, wow. interviewed her for the podcast and she... Had, I don't think she had written a song about the epidemic, but I think she, like, participated in um, – because uh, she also, like, makes – she's amazing. She, like, makes her own clothes out of, like, wow. seal skin. And so she made yeah. a, um, an um, indigenous Inuit um, coat that women mm. wear that they can carry their baby in. And, wow. And it amazing. was red for, uh, like, an art installation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's really yeah. cool. Wow, that's incredible. Yeah. Um, that's how I first heard about it. Yeah. And that's and that's just it. It's like as artists, you know, she's starting the conversation and it's like we just have to continue. Yeah. Yeah, and it's it's like it's such an awful thing. I don't mean to like sidetrack us, but it's such mm-hmm. an awful thing that like it's kind of like when I was first reading about the op- opioid epidemic. Yeah. Like, it's kind of like you're walking into the middle of the conversation where people's lives have been decimated by this thing that you're just like, oh, I have no idea about this. Like, yeah, that's that's interesting you bring that up because I had the same realization about the opioid epidemic when I saw a documentary like five years ago. And Mm -hmm. I was like, I didn't know this was like one of the leading causes of like death. It was just insane. Yeah. Yeah. Right before the pandemic, you moved to Long Beach, which Mm -hmm. is you're in the LBC right now. Oh, yeah. Uh, You had been on the road for like years before (laughs) everything shut down and everything stopped. So since being off the road, you've experienced, it sounds like, some incredible growth 
and yeah. learn to value <laughs> yourself as an artist and as a whole human being. Yes. Woo-woo. Not just a person on stage. So as someone who held your identity in like being a touring artist and equating your self-worth with how big the shows were, mm-hmm. can you expand on how you're measuring your self-worth now and how will performing yeah. be different for you in the future? Whew. So like a very simple, light question. Yeah. <laughs> it's a great question. You know, um, I feel a lot more like emotionally, mentally healthy now, which is interesting because we live in a pandemic. But I think that um, this one silver lining for me was like this exhale of, of getting off the road. And yeah, there was this three-year period of like just going from tour to tour to tour to tour to tour not taking care of myself. I was getting chronic headaches. I was like kind of hurting for a lot of the end of Mm. it and um, just overworking myself and running myself to the ground and not caring because I kept telling myself like if I pass on a tour, then like I will not, then I'm like, who am I? Like I'm I'm a touring artist. If I say no to something, then I'm like a failure. Mm-hmm. Um, and now I've realized that there is no me- way to measure my self-worth. The only, my self-worth is a given. I am, you know, as long as I wake up in the morning, I am worthy of my day and that everything I do is creativity, whether it's like washing the dishes or cleaning my house or writing a song, like everything is creativity. And um, washing the dishes, washing the dishes is absolutely creativity. <laughs> I guess that's true. Got to get those grime and grease stains off somehow. Everyone washes the dishes differently. It's a form of like creative, um, you know, innovation. Wow. Never thought about that. (laughs) (laughs) And, um, you know, everything is creativity and and I'm worthy. I'm worthy no matter what. Um, That has been like kind of this radical feeling of like, I don't need to earn my my self-respect like it is a given. And um, it's really set me free to do things that I've always wanted to do and to think of myself as like a full creative, like I'm starting to learn how to cook and roller skate. I started a podcast. I'm starting to write essays. I'm starting to write a book or thinking about writing a musical and think about all of these things that I never would have thought about on the road. Because if I was on tour, I would be like, I am a touring artist. I make music. I play shows and that's it. And if I do anything else, it's going to take away from that. And I Mm. now know that that's not true. And so yeah (laughs) rad i love that okay ray yeah before i let you go let us do the lightning round Ooh, love lightning rounds okay nobody ever says that everyone's like oh i hate these or i'm no good at these but i love your attitude going in all right first song you learned on the guitar bohemian rhapsody wow that is a challenge i know it took a long time what is your karaoke song? Don't Stop Believing. I already know the answer to this because you you have a special person in your life named Bronx. Dogs or cats or something else? <gasps> oh, dogs, 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 dogs. <laughs> Always dogs. What kind of dog is Bronx? Bronx is a Shih Tzu Pekingese Ewok. Ewok. <laughs> <laughs> if you see a picture of Bronx, you'll know what I'm talking about. <laughs> what is your coffee order? I don't drink coffee. Wow. Yeah, no caffeine at all. Not even. Yeah, zero caffeine. It's great. (laughs) First celebrity crush? Adam Pascal. I can't even say he's a celebrity. I don't, I mean, Adam Pascal is like, anyway, I was obsessed with Rent as a kid. And I used to have Adam Pascal as Roger, like all over every binder, everything. And so 
To call him a celebrity might be a stretch, but out of us. Some musical theater listeners. So, yeah, musical theaters. They enjoy that. <laughs> Who is the nicest musician you've ever met? The nicest musician I've ever met, Rodriguez. First album you bought with your own money? Uh, Avril Lavigne, Let Go. Yes. What was your first concert? American Idol. Wow. My sister made me go. Oh, well, that's not fair. With Clay Aiken, yeah. It wasn't. Wouldn't be. It wouldn't have been my choice. What was the first concert that would have been your choice? The first concert that would have been my choice. Oh my gosh! What was the first concert that would have been my choice? Um, I think me and my friend Kalina went and saw Cartel at the Roxy. I don't know if it would have been my choice, but it was like kind of a really fun experience. <laughs> <laughs> what is the last book you read? The last book I read, Mindy Kaling's book. Is everyone hanging out without me? I think that's, yeah. Flying or invisibility? Oh, flying. Obviously. Yeah. Star Trek or Star Wars? I haven't seen either. Wow. Okay. That's to be, fair. To that's be honest. Fair. <laughs> okay, here's the last one. Where's the most beautiful place you've ever visited? Cinque Terre, Italy. That was amazing. Ooh, that sounds nice. Yeah. I want to go back. That's it. We have done the lightning round. Yay! We have finished the interview. Thank you so much for for talking to me. This was like a a real pleasure. Oh my gosh. Thank you. This was amazing. I'm so impressed that you like listened to my podcast and everything. That was so fun. I listened to a couple episodes. I want to listen to the KT Tunstall episode. Yes, you should. She's so fun. Yeah. I love her. And love you. Love I love the record. Um, and you. you're just honestly, like, just keep me in mind if you are um, starting, uh, you know, if you're, like, starting a community. Let's not say yes. cult, because cult has bad connotations. But Totally. I yeah. will let you know about the Yes. Cult. Put me on that <laughs> mailing list. <laughs> Yay. Well, thank you so much. Very happy to say Basic Folk this week was produced by Eric Norwood. Thanks, Eric. Lindsay Myers is our business manager. Basic Folk is on the American Songwriter Podcast Network. Alex Stanton of Townspeople does our music. I'm Cindy Howes, and if you like this interview, please share it with a friend or an enemy uh, or a family member or someone you're not related to. Anyone, really, uh, if you think they would enjoy it. And please rate, subscribe, and review on iTunes. That's very helpful. You can listen to all of the episodes of Basic Folk wherever you get podcasts and at my website, cindyhouse.net. And thanks for listening all the way to the end. So great. Okay, bye. Bye.